0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When will there finally be justice? When will there finally be justice? Last time we heard the question of the scoffers who asked, where is the promise of his coming? And they asked that question because it seemed to them that although the Bible says there will come a time when God will return and will establish righteousness, that promise was made a long time ago, and therefore it's no incentive to good behavior, so to speak. Where is the promise of his coming? Why should we behave ourselves? You say that he's coming again, but things have continued on as they always have, with no evidence that there will be justice. Where is the promise of his coming? It's not just a question of the scoffer, though. Sometimes it's a question of uh, the hopeful who have become disappointed. Those who yearn for the promise of his coming and do not see it realized ask this question as well. If there is no judgment, then the strong will overrule the weak. If there is no judgment, then the strong are emboldened to do whatever they like. And if there is no justice, then the weak are hopeless, disillusioned, have nothing to fix their hopes upon. These emotions, these thwarted desires oftentimes are channeled most uh, persuasively and convincingly into song. One of the great uh, protest anthems of my generation, uh, the 1980s, in case you're wondering, is by uh, the band U2. It's called Sunday Bloody Sunday. and Whenever I think about justice, I always think about this song. And for those of you who grew up around the time I did, you just have to say the words and you hear the thumping of the drum. and You can imagine Bono in his vest with no shirt on singing the song, sorry to conjure that image for you. But the thing is, the song dates from 1983, but the band still performs it now in their concerts. It's, it's one of their shockingly most relevant songs. For those of you who don't know it or haven't thought about it, let me just give you a taste of the lyrics. I can't believe the news today. and I can't close my eyes and make it go away. Broken bottles under children's feet, bodies strewn across the dead-end street. But I won't heed the battle call. It puts my back up against the wall. The battle's just begun. There's many lost. But tell me, who has won? The trench is dug within our hearts, and mothers, children, brothers, sisters torn apart. And it's true we are immune when fact is fiction and TV reality And today the millions cry, we eat and drink, while tomorrow they die. How long, how long must we sing this song? How long, how long? At least 30 years. The tragic thing about songs like this is they don't lose their relevance. The frustrations that lead to this cry of how long, they don't go away. The problems are not solved. The songs can be sung again and again and again. And this particular song, some of its resonance comes from the fact that the words that you hear, whether you realize it or not, are steeped in Scripture. This line, mothers, children, brothers, sisters, torn apart, is a paraphrase of Matthew 10, verse 35. We eat and drink while tomorrow they die, 1 Corinthians 15 32. But of course, it's the title, it's the chorus that that drinks most deeply from the testimony of Scripture. How long, how long is a song sung many times in Scripture? How long, O Lord? It's the song of the broken heart of our humanity. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long, O Lord, will you look on? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? A cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Words of the psalmist, words of the prophet Habakkuk. Hear these words. This is from Revelation Chapter 6, where the song is sung again, Revelation chapter 6, John records these words. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And listen to what happens. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long is the question that we've been asking from the very beginning. And it's a question that Peter takes up now in our text. He's addressed the question of the scoffers, but he recognizes that not everyone who asks where is the promise of his coming asks out of unbelief. Sometimes we ask that question out of thwarted hope. Peter says these words. This is starting in verse 8, 8, 9, and 10 of 2 Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, will be exposed. I see that line, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's interesting to think, just since we met for worship last week, over the course of the last week, how many of the deeds that are done on the earth have been exposed in the headlines this week. Little taste of justice this week. And the crazy thing about saying that is, as long as I go no farther and don't tell you exactly what I'm thinking about, we could all be thinking about different things and still be right. And the tragic thing is, 10 years from now, people listening to this sermon, hypothetically, people listening to this sermon would hear those words and they would still be relevant. And they would think, oh yes, some terrible deeds were uncovered this past week and there was some justice that was doled out to evildoers. But the continued relevance of those revelations suggests whatever justice there is, whatever revelation there is, it's not enough because it doesn't change things. Because the evil that is uncovered this week will go on. And the justice that is done this week will need to be done again next week and the week after, and it will never be enough. It won't change things. Why are our tastes of justice in this life so fleeting? Why does the justice that we see never seem to change the fundamental problem? What's going on? Well in our text, Peter, Is going to teach us some things. He's going to teach us that there's some things about God that we can never understand. There are some things about God that we can never understand. And there are some reasons that we can never understand them. Reasons that are worth reflecting on. But there are some things we can know even if we don't understand them. We can know them even if we don't understand them. So there's some things we can never understand about God. For example, we can never understand God's relationship to time and especially his timing, God's sense of timing. Peter says, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. I think it's worth pausing to consider things Peter probably doesn't mean by this. So here's something Peter probably doesn't mean. God just has no sense of time. To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It's just different for him. or He just doesn't get how time works for us. And so, I mean, God, he's all-powerful, he's infinite, and so sometimes he intends to do things in a timely way, but he takes a Sabbath rest, takes a day off, and suddenly a thousand years have passed. And God's like, wow, clearly I have a different sense of time than everybody else does. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying somehow that the reason why God's justice is delayed is because God just doesn't get it. God doesn't understand what's going on. God's just somehow removed from our reality a little bit too much to answer when we call. And Peter also here isn't intending for us to be overly literal. He doesn't mean literally, like a day equals a thousand years for God and vice versa. He's not saying, I I realize... Eventually, 1500 years from now, scientists are going to say that that God can't have created everything in in seven days, but I'm going to give Christians some wiggle room here and just just point out that it could also have been a thousand years. That's not what Peter's getting at. Like, what is he trying to say here? What's he intending to say in this context? I think what he's getting at is that God's relationship to time is different than ours, And if we don't remember that, we can misunderstand his delays, his seeming delays. So what's the difference? What's the difference? One of the things you'll often hear people say is uh, something along the lines of God stands outside of time. Have you heard that? God stands outside of time, uh, which I think is one of those well-meaning statements that if you take too literally, it's very misleading. God stands outside of time and yet God is also working in time. Like God is present in human history. God is driving human history. So when we say that he stands outside of time, we have to be careful not to suggest somehow God's removed from the course of history, like a sort of cosmic clockmaker who set things in motion and now is just sort of standing back and letting time do its work. That's not what God does. A better way to think about this is is that God is not subject to time because God created it and the creator isn't subject to the things that he's made. If you think about yourself, we are subject to time. We live under the rule of time, as it were. Like our lives are structured according to time. We tick off the days. We, We understand ourselves in relation to duration, like how long we've been going on. Change the way things used to be a certain way and and we remember that and now things are totally different and that gives us a sense of, of age. The world has changed. We feel older. That's the passage of time. More fundamentally, all of our education is an experience of time because we sort of learn things in sequence over time. If you remember what it was like to be in school. There were things you couldn't have imagined understanding and then a few years later they were easy. What changed was you. You changed over time. Your capacities grew over time, none of which ever happened to God. God never learned anything in the way that we learn them. Things don't occur to him in sequence. He doesn't sort of grow into his knowledge. He doesn't have a sense of his old age. He's been around since before the beginning, and yet he doesn't feel old because he hasn't changed. He's not subject to those constraints. And yet, when we look to understand him, it's hard for us to set those things aside. It's hard for us not to judge him according to the things we live under, the constraints that we live under, duration, disintegration, aging, change. They shape us, but they don't shape him. They don't shape him. He shapes them. And that's hard for us to understand. Impossible for us to understand. But the thing we need to know is that despite this different relationship to time, God is not indifferent. His delay is not a sign of his indifference to time. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. To us, it seems slow. Seems like God is, is, is waiting too long. Peter's not saying, well, it, 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 I realize God is really slow, but you've got to understand that, that he sort of takes this long view. Peter's saying he's not slow. Like what you're experiencing is not God being slow. God is not slow, God is moving forward. It's just you don't understand. You don't understand the scale on which he's working. Try to think of this analogy. Um, How many action movies have you seen where something kind of like this has happened? The heroes, group of heroes have managed to plant a bomb, set the timer ticking to destroy the bad guy's base or whatever it is and everyone is ready to go on the escape pod or the shuttle or the helicopter that's going to get them out, except for the hero who's like the last person who had to stay behind in order to push the button or set the trap or whatever it is. There's always this conversation that takes place on the 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 mode of transport about whether or not we should wait for this person to come. Because he said, don't wait for me, right? They always say that. They always say, look, just leave me behind. You guys escape. But whoever is left in charge never feels right just leaving them behind. They always want to wait a certain period. And so this sparks a conversation. How long is too long? Right, we, need, we need to get going or we'll all die. We need to take off now. And of course you wait and, and, spoiler alert, the hero always makes it in time. It always tends to work out. But we're like that that like weakest-willed good guy who once he's on the chopper knows it's time to take off. That's how we are. As long as it's the moment that we step across the threshold, it's time to lift off. Because look how bad things are out there. Look how close destruction is getting to us. The timer is ticking down. We need to go. It seems imperative to us. But God doesn't work on that perspective. We're ready to get this salvation thing over. Like the moment you believed it was time to go to glory, We're ready for this. We don't need any intervening perseverance. We don't need any intervening human history. The way this should work is Jesus comes. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus ascends and then immediately comes right back down and it's done. That feels like the right timing to us. But that's not the way God works. God is the one in control of the escape pod. And He's waiting. He is waiting For Jesus to bring in every last one of his children. We can never understand time the way God does. And we can never understand God's will the way God does either. We can never understand his will, especially concerning salvation. Verses 9 and 10, Peter says that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now think about that. That raises some interesting questions. If God is not wishing that any should perish, doesn't that mean none will perish? Because isn't God all powerful? Doesn't God get what God wants? Can't his will not be thwarted? Isn't he the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass? Doesn't he work all things according to the counsel of his will? And now he's telling us he doesn't wish for any to perish. Well, that seems like the good news of the gospel is even better than we realized because it suggests that none will perish, that all will ultimately be saved. But then that creates a little bit of a problem because the reason Peter is talking about these things is judgment. He's assuring us judgment will come. And in verse 10, right after he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's not saying, don't worry, there will be no judgment because God is going to make it all go away. There will be judgment, and yet God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think we all have within us um, a good-hearted, universalistic desire. I don't know about you, but if on the last day, on the day of the Lord, as we're all standing in line before the throne of judgment, an angel comes out and says, hey, guess what, everybody? You all get a pass. Doesn't matter what you believed, doesn't matter what you did, everybody's saved. Come on into heaven. I'm not gonna be angry about that. I'm not gonna say, wait a second, I preached the gospel and it said something different. I'm gonna be relieved. Right? I imagine you would be as well. None of us, none of us as fallen human beings, have a problem with God like over forgiving. Right? Because all of us have been beneficiaries of the overforgivingness of God. And yet one of the things we've seen again and again is this, that we can't read one part of scripture, one passage here in a way that cancels out this passage over there, right? That it all fits together. So if here in verse 9, Peter is being a universalist, it seems like that would cancel out other passages elsewhere, which are not. In fact, it would be worse than that because what you would actually see is not this passage canceling out another passage. You would see this passage canceling out itself because these words are are bracketed or bookended with this discussion of a judgment that will come, of a final justice that will be done. So by definition, Peter is not saying because God wishes that none will perish, none will perish. So what is he saying? Here are a couple of things that might help us. First of all, God's patience is directed toward you. God says, or Peter says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So one way to read what Peter is saying is to infer that the desire that that is expressed here is a desire directed by God towards his people. As if Peter were saying, um, none of you should perish, but all of you should reach repentance. There's another thing to note here. He doesn't say not willing that any should perish, but that all should be saved. Or as I said earlier, get a pass. He says should reach repentance. That tells you something. The the desire that, that God has is directed towards repentance from sin and belief in Jesus Christ. So Peter isn't here suddenly forgetting God's plan of salvation. The desire on God's part is to see repentance, to see sin turned away from, to see Christ embraced. Now, however you want to read those things, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees, There's nothing contradictory about saying that the God who is all-powerful, who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that that God who will be the ultimate judge of all of us doesn't wish that any should perish. That's not contradictory at all. We recognize in ourselves this same kind of behavior. There are things that we do not wish to take place and yet we ultimately not only allow them to take place, but are the instruments of bringing them about. And You think about those of you who have children. You don't wish to discipline your children. And you're sometimes patient towards them. More patient than other parents really think is justified. <laughs> and then ultimately, you bring judgment. By your own hand. Was it a lie to say That you didn't wish for that to happen? No. It's just you're complicated. You're a complicated person. All I'm saying to you is God is a little more complicated than you are. A little vaster. A little more incomprehensible than we are. The complexity of God's will is something to marvel over. But it doesn't mean that God is confused. A lot of times our complexity comes from confusion right we look at situations we're like well it's complicated it's complicated I want to do this but I also want to do that and I'm not really sure what I should want none of that is true for God God isn't complex because he's conflicted God knows exactly what he's doing he knows exactly what he wants he knows exactly how he will bring it about but he's also the infinite God of the universe, creator of all things, and necessarily a little complex. He is vast. He is all-knowing, incomprehensible. These are all things we have a hard time understanding, and so when we look at these statements about God, we tend to assume he must be like us. He's just conflicted. I mean, he wants one thing, and he just can't quite bring it about, and so he has to do this other thing, and and it's tough and I get it because it happens to me all the time. It's not what Peter is saying at all. There is a complexity to God but not because of a weakness that he has. There are some things we can't understand. There are some reasons we can't understand them and this touches on them. We can't understand because we are finite and fallen. Because we're shaped by time without even being conscious of how we're shaped. We can't understand how God relates. We can't understand the character of of his patience. Our lived experience, so to speak, is so remote from his that how could we possibly judge his actions? We literally do not know what we're talking about when we start talking about God with too much certainty. The only knowledge we have of him that is reliable is the knowledge of himself that he gives us. Secondhand, so to speak, through Scripture, through His Word. This is how we know Him. This is how we know Him. The same thing is true with will. When we come to judge the will of God and seek to understand the will of God, we judge it based on our own experience of roiling passion and indetermination, self-doubt, alternating large-heartedness and petty-mindedness. It's the way we are. So we assume God must be like that too, only bigger, more powerful, But God isn't like us at all in that respect because we're that way because of sin, something that God has never experienced, could never experience. Our conflicted will is the result of sin, but God does not have a divided self. God is not at war with his passions. He is not conflicted about what he will or will not do. Here's the funny thing, even those of us who confess the greatness, the magnitude of God, when it comes to understanding Him and judging Him, we tend to shrink Him down. We tend to make Him a single cell organism, to pretend that He ought to be easy to comprehend. And as a result, we reduce Him. We reduce Him to a handful of axioms, little rules to explain God. Is it any wonder that if we understand God that way, we think we can easily trap him in little logic puzzles? Could God create a rock so big he couldn't lift it, that sort of thing? And it feels so persuasive and so conclusive to us because we're not dealing with God. We're dealing with a little manufactured deity of our own making. And thus it is that people who think they know him best, whether they are atheists or theologians, sometimes miss him entirely because they're not dealing with God at all but with their idea of him there're things about God we cannot understand because of who we are as human beings there are things we could never understand fall or no fall but as fallen human beings we have a kind of blindness we think we're being rational we think we're being objective in rejecting him in uh, accusing him we're not conscious of the way we are shaped By our sin. But there are things we can know even if we don't understand. There are things we can know even if we don't understand because you don't have to understand in order to know. We can know God's faithfulness, God's love, and even God's holiness. We can know that God is faithful. Peter says God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's going to do what he says He will do, in fact, he is doing what he said he would do. Earlier, in the how longs, you heard a brief line from the prophet Habakkuk, who was one of those people who said, how long, O Lord? Here's how he was answered. This is in Habakkuk chapter 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It's not delaying. It's not on pause. It will come. We can be certain. We can know for certain that God is faithful, even if we don't understand the many ways in which he has been faithful. And we can know God's love. Let's not argue over God's love. Let's revel in God's love. God has proven his love through the cross. He has proven his love through his patience with us. The penalty for sin, remember, was death. Our first parents could have been rightly put to death the moment they sinned, and they weren't. Was it because... What God said was going to happen was a lie? God said, if you eat of the tree, you'll die, but then they ate of the tree, and it turns out, (laughs) no, God was wrong. Or was it because of his mercy? Was it because of his patience? His patience began at the beginning, his patience towards us, showing us his love. But Paul says, don't misunderstand this patience. Romans 2, he says, do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The patience that God has shown is a sign of his love, but that patience is not something we should twist and misunderstand it seems that there is no punishment for sin, and therefore we should sin, understand that the punishment is only delayed out of love. And that's because of the third thing we can know, even without understanding, which is God's holiness. Because God is holy and that hasn't changed, there is no pass to be granted. It's not okay to be unrighteous. We sang earlier in our service, that song, Holy, 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 Holy. These are the words that the angels sing in the presence of God. And you think you understand them. To be holy is to be sanctified, to be set apart. But the reality is we have no idea what we're singing when we sing that song. When we sing Holy, 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 we don't get it at all. Because what that song means is that a good man with the best of intentions can place his hand on the Ark of the Covenant and rightly die for it. Because of God's holiness. That's what we sing when we sing holy, holy, holy. The perfection of God that cannot be touched by our imperfect human hands. We can't understand how holy God is. But we can know it. We can know it because of the necessity of the plan of salvation. Because of what Christ had to do because of that demand for righteousness. You can know things without understanding them because what you're asked to know when we ask you to know Jesus is not some information but a person. Jesus isn't just some axioms. He's not some premises that will help you live a better life. Jesus is a person who will save you. If we can know God's faithfulness and His love and His righteousness, think about that. And what the cross says to those things, the cross of Christ is God's faithfulness in action. God promised in Genesis 3.15 he would crush the serpent's head and at Calvary he did it. Christ did it. He accomplished that work. That promise was kept. The gospel is a promise that was kept at infinite cost and it testifies to the faithfulness of God. You can't question the faithfulness of one who paid such a price to keep his promises. It's beyond question. The cross also holds out God's love to you. You think about that that door to salvation. That door would have slammed shut long ago had not Jesus Christ placed his cross in it, so to speak, to prop it open. The cross props open the door to salvation. It prevents us from losing our chance, so to speak, at salvation. The cross is what holds that love out to us. It is through the cross, what happened on the cross, through the body and blood of Jesus Christ that we pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies to see the Lord who made us face to face. It's through the cross, the love of God held out in the cross. The cross proves that love beyond a shadow of a doubt. The cross is also Christ's righteousness for you, proving the holiness of God. The Holy Father sent His Holy Son to become one of us to live the righteousness that we could never live and then to give it to us. God didn't lower the bar so that we could be forgiven. Christ fulfilled it for us and then handed His righteous life to us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us so that we can be made holy like him. We are made holy by his righteousness. Now, all that is true, and yet we still sing, how long? How long, how long must we sing this song? How long is a cry of despair, but it can also be a cry of hope. If you listen to that U2 song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, um, uh, I don't imagine a lot of pastors are encouraging this on the drive home, but but do it if you can. If you listen to the very end, the chorus it's going to get repeated a few times and then a few more times, but if you keep listening to the very end, as it's kind of fading down and it seems like the song is over, you're going to hear some new words in that chorus of repetition. You're going to hear these words. The real battle just begun to claim the victory Jesus won On Sunday, bloody Sunday. Every Sunday since the resurrection has been a bloody Sunday for us. But it's been a bloody Sunday of hope, not of despair, because the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed. The new covenant in His blood shed to atone for the sins of His people. So let the strong be warned there will be a reckoning. Judgment will come. It may seem that God is taking a long time, but there's a reason. It is patience. It is not indifference. It is not absence. He's waiting to bring his people in. So repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And let the weak be encouraged that there will be justice in the name of Christ. The wrongs that are done will not be left undone. There will ultimately be. Be justice in the name of Christ. And let those who trust in Christ alone be comforted, even as we cry out, even so come quickly. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at org.